This is Real Estate Rookie episode 259er. I think what was really interesting and what I think is so important that not a lot of people realize is that uh, let's say I want to buy a house. It could be a primary residence or a second home or investment property. Sometimes when we don't have the money available readily, that can be a blocker. And people just you know get demotivated by that and they don't take a step forward. But if one is creative with their financing, they could make the situation work. It is it is very important to know the what what access you have to your financial accounts and how you can utilize it. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And I want to start this episode by shouting out someone by the username of D Pencil. Um, and D left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts that says, I'm honestly a little reluctant to give a five-star review because I don't want everyone to know about the Ricky podcast. This way I can keep you all to myself. Uh, I look forward to the new releases so I can keep absorbing all of the great information from y'all and your guests. Cheers from South Carolina. Well, D, we appreciate you. And if you're a part of the Ricky audience, uh, the Ricky community, and you haven't yet left us a five-star or honest review, whatever you feel we deserve, uh, please do leave us one. The more reviews you get, the more folks we can help and helping people is what we're all about here. So I should care. What's up? How are you doing today? You know what? I feel like you always ask me because you just transition right into that. But let's ask you first this time. What's up with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what is up with me? Well, uh, as, as of this recording, we're like a, a few days out from Christmas. So we're actually starting to slow down a little bit. Got pretty much nothing on the calendar for next week, which is nice. But um, on the real estate side, I have a flip under contract. It would be one of our heaviest flips that we've done. Um, we've got actually another flip. Actually, I got two under contract now because someone just said yes the other day. Um, we've got uh, a cabin that was supposed to close this week in the Smoky Mountains, but turns out the builder built the house incorrectly. <laughs> it was supposed to be a four-bedroom, and we found out uh, that it was a three-bedroom. So the appraisal came back super low, and we're like, what the heck happened? So we hit up our agent, our agent like, you know, did a walkthrough and yeah, we bought a four bed, but they gave us a three bedroom. Um, so now we're going back with the builder. They have to like add another wall to convert this space into a, into a bedroom, which sucks because we needed this to close before the end of the year so we could get the tax benefits and now that's not going to happen. So anyway, there's, there's a lot going on, but you know, uh, just enough. Oh my gosh, that is insane. Like you, what, you wouldn't even think of that happening. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, how do you even prevent that as... Next time you have a builder, you're sending someone out to to inspections with a copy of the floor plan. I guess so, right? Because I mean, yeah, you gotta have you gotta have the floor plan to know that something's off like that. Right? Know? Yeah. Like our 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 realtor would go through and give us like video updates, but yeah, no one ever put two and two together until the appraiser went through and said, "There's only three bedrooms here, not four. So. And like the builder, I mean, how do you? <laughs> the crazier part is that we're not the only ones that it happened to. So our neighbor, he's a good friend of ours. The same exact thing happened to him. Um, but his was even worse because the square foot, like it was just completely the wrong floor plan. Like ours, instead of making that fourth bedroom a bedroom, they just made it like a like a loft. So, you know, that you got to go in and like close it up. Our friend literally had like a completely different floor plan. Like the square footage is wrong. The layout is wrong. Everything was off with his. So I don't know lessons learned yeah and you know with a loft too it's really i've learned because we have three lofts right now actually four lofts between three of our properties and i'm learning so much as to like 
how to actually make it count as a bedroom. Yeah. I'll keep you guys posted. Man. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, sorry, sorry that's happening, Tony, but just the things of investing in real estate, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Roll, roll with the punches, right? <laughs> yeah. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent to retirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So today we have a really cool guest on. We have Pooja on who started investing in India in condos and now has investment properties in the U.S. And she actually used this for her deal um, where we kind of break it down, her primary residence where she did some creative financing. So if you're having trouble finding a down payment, this is the episode to listen to because she shows you how she did it for that creative financing. Yeah, Pooja is also super interesting because she helps with the On The Market podcast doing some research and data and analysis. And you get to hear in this episode uh, kind of her process when she starts researching new markets, new properties. So that was really cool. But I think, Ash, the thing that stuck out to me the most about Pooja and what was probably the most unique about her story was her approach to investing, where so many people that we bring on the show, they're focused on cash flow today and, you know, building up the cash flow as fast as possible. Pooja is almost going at it from the opposite angle where she said, hey, I'm willing to take a small loss on a property even because it helps me with my long-term goals. So if you if you want to hear more about why she's willing to do that, make sure you listen all the way through. 
Pooja, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you start off telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, of course. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to be here. Well, my name is Pooja, Pooja Jindal. I live in Southern California along the beach cities with my husband, our two boys, and a cute ch- chocolate Labrador. So professionally, I actually wear multiple hats. I am a licensed real estate agent in the state of California. I am an active real estate investor. I'm an IT professional and a media and entertainment studio company in Culver City. And uh, a real cool hat that I'm so proud to wear is I'm also the researcher for Bigger Pockets on the Market Podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts, along with the Rookie Podcast, along with the Real Estate Podcast, along with all the Bigger Pockets podcasts. So, yeah, so that's about myself. And uh, my first stint in real estate industry was actually 14 years ago. I was working as a summer intern at a real estate consulting firm, DTZ Real Estate Consulting. It's part of now Cushman and Wakefield. And I was uh, doing the research for the retail markets. Actually, it was like the shopping malls and the complexes in all the metropolitan cities in India. And that's when I got exposed to so many terms of real estate and I realized how how exciting it was for me, how good I was, and how skilled I was to pick up all those terms and terminology, and uh, I was able to get all the data. So that was my first stint. And uh, the first real estate property that my husband and I bought was actually back in 2011 in India. It was a new construction condo that we had originally bought with an intent of using it as a primary residence. That never worked out, more on that later. But since then, we've been investing in real estate, mainly long-term buy and hold. Pooja, can you, before we go too far, can you just give the listeners an overview of what your portfolio looks like today? So currently, we own in total four rentals and a primary residence. Two of our rentals are in India, two are here in Southern California, and then yeah, our primary residence is Southern California. So the rentals in India are condos, and the rentals in Southern California are single-family residences. Where did you start out? Which uh, place did you purchase in first? It was uh, like in India, like first real estate investment that was... Well, did you do... Yeah, did you buy in India first or did you buy in Southern California first? Okay, so I used to live in India. So I we moved here in 2010. So my husband and I, we moved here in 2010. So the first property that we bought together was in India in 2010 slash 2011. It was December, January time frame. And after that, uh, we we still continue to buy properties in India. And then the first property that I bought, that we bought in U.S. was in 2017 in Southern California. Can you talk a little bit about the differences of maybe buying in India versus buying in the U.S.? How did you have to kind of pivot your strategy, adapt a change, and just some of the things that you ran into that were different buying in each place? Yeah, so we're... I grew up in Delhi. It's one of the most expensive places in the world, probably, actually. So the difference is it's the red tape is much worse over there whenever you're trying to buy a property or sell a property. When I sold our two properties over there, I, I decided I'm not going to buy over there anymore because the selling part was so difficult. So in terms of pivoting the strategy, the relationships are much more important over there as compared to the deal analysis that you could do on the laptop or on the phone or just by reading books or by reading blog articles. So in terms of the legwork that one has to do, the research, it's much more based on relationships. In terms of the properties that you can find that fits your criteria, 
it's narrower over there because the houses are so much more expensive. And then in terms of actually doing the transaction, which is like buying or selling, it's still reliant of reliant on being there in person. I cannot just docu sign papers and sell a property sitting from here. I actually had to go over there physically to sign the papers and sit over there for like 10 hours to just to close. I just want to follow up with one question, Pooja. Like, what has the experience been like for you trying to manage those properties from America, given that they're in, a, in another country? The experience has been good so far, honestly. Like, I, I forgot about those properties because in terms of the cash flow, they are not generating that much of cash flow, to be honest, just because of the difference in terms of the currency and the price point and how much rent people would pay over there. But as far as managing it is concerned, I think what really helped is that we still have family back there where we have the properties. So that really helps to manage the properties. We, we really don't have any property manager. We don't get repairs requests or anything of that sort. So it's really just about uh, collecting the rent checks that get deposited in our accounts and having some having a network, having a support system of either friends or family who would be available in case there were to be a problem with the property or problem with the tenant in terms of not being able to collect the rent on time. Yeah. So, and I asked that question because we have so many new investors who are afraid to invest out of their own backyard, let alone in another state, let alone another country, uh, but you've somehow figured out a way to, to do that. And I just looked it up and from the New Delhi to California, it's a it's almost a 20-hour flight. <laughs> um, so you can't get much further than California and New Delhi. But if I'm hearing you right, Pooja, you're saying the reason that it's it's been so easy for you to manage from such a far distance is because you have the people in that town and that city that are that are kind of helping you manage. Am, am I hearing that correctly? Okay, so yes, it's been easier for me because I have a support system, but it's also important to know the market in and out. Like whenever I'm buying properties, I take the lead on buying properties. All the properties that we buy, it's my husband and I, we buy together, but he's mainly providing the capital and the signatures. But uh, mainly I do all the research and I'm really focused on knowing the market before I make the decision. So now these properties in India that we bought, because since I grew up in that place, I knew which areas are better, which areas have upcoming development, which areas are up and coming, which areas there is, you know, a good tenant base, a lot, lot of companies there, a lot of corporates there, so I wouldn't have a problem in renting out the space. So yes, support system is important, but that comes after the fact. Like before, it's so important to make sure that you're making an informed decision and being from that place helped me to buy the properties. If I were to pick another place, I, I would be okay with that as long as I really have done my own research and analysis and talked to some local people over there. So what you're saying, Pooja, is that the the data analysis that you're doing up front is the first step in giving yourself confidence to be able to buy these properties that are so far away. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's the first step. Can we can we dig into that a little bit? Like what what kind of research are you doing when you're looking at? Um, either markets in India or even markets here in California. Like, what what is your starting point to say? Okay, here's here's where I want to focus my research. Yeah. So really, so I have my own criteria, and that has come from you know just a collective knowledge of just talking to people, talking to other investors, reading articles, or listening to podcasts. So number first, number one, I start with the location. So it's contradictory that I do have properties in India and I did buy and sell properties in Austin, but I try to focus within Southern California. I, I like to invest local. So number one is a location. So I always start off with, yeah, I want, I want to invest locally. 
Then after that, uh, it's the price. So my objective is, and I do it slightly different. I don't have a price point in mind. I do in terms of the monthly outflow. So I have a criteria that I don't want to have a monthly cost of more than $5,000 a month. And from there, I work backwards because then you're going to look at the property taxes. You're going to look at, you know, the other expenses, the utilities, and you're going to look at the interest rates. So because interest rates keep changing. So if I could afford a 1.2 million property six months ago, now that is like $800,000 property. So then I look at the price. And after that, the type of the property. I like to invest in single family residences. I try to stay away from condos or townhomes for for multiple reasons. I I want to own the land and being able to do anything that I want to do with it, just worrying about the city or the state laws rather than the HOA rules. So the type of the property next thing comes into the picture. And then I really start doing my analysis in terms of the cash flow from that property. So I have the criteria that in the first two years of the property, since I'm investing in Southern California, where the price point is already so high and it is difficult to have a positive cash flow, my goal is that in the first two years, I'm okay to take a hit of negative cash flow of 5% of my monthly outflow. So for example, if the monthly outflow is $5,000, I'm okay to have a negative cash flow of $250 a month for first two years. And after that, my goal is to start break even in the third year and then have a positive cash flow of 5% of the monthly cost in the year fourth and fifth and so on and so forth. And of course, that 5% is going to keep on increasing because my monthly payment would remain the same and the rent would increase. So, and then I start looking at the properties. Then I would go look at the properties on MLS, even on Redfin, Trulia, Zillow, just utilizing my relationships with other realtors, with neighbors, friends, anybody that I'm aware of that could have an off-market deal. I do that. Then, I, I know it's, it's a long process. Then I start looking at the monthly expense for that property, actual property tax rate, actual running expenses, the repairs, and then any of the vacancy costs that might come up in the future. And then I compare the expenses with the inflow and that's when I make a decision. Okay, yeah, this property makes sense. And the last step would be to actually schedule the showing appointment. So I do all this leg work before I actually go and see the property before I actually go and start considering to buy that property. This is a lot of great information and we really wanna get into this <laughs> a lot more. But my first question is, some of those expenses are variable or they're not yet determined when you're doing that deal analysis. So, for example, you mentioned the interest rate that, you know, what you could have bought six months ago is way different than now. How are you staying on top of some of those variable expenses, like even market data, you know, showing that the same city you're investing in still has the same, you know, price to rent ratio, things like that, as you continue analysis over the year? Where are you getting this data from that you're pulling to use for your numbers, for your expenses, so that you know that it's the most accurate data that you can get? Yeah. Okay. So as far as expenses are concerned, um, the upfront expense is going to be the down payment that we make. We usually make 25% down payment, rest of it we finance. So that part is fixed, which is an upfront expense. Then after that expense is the interest, which is a mortgage payment. For that, I... I have close relationships with the lenders so I and I try to stay on top of the market so that I know, okay, what is the rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage? 
What is the rate for seven one arm? What is the rate for five one arm? Is that you just you emailing them and asking them, or are you going to a website to look for that? Like, where could somebody else find that information? I actually call them up to get that information. Yes, so I call them up, and that's how I get that information because um, every scenario is so different. And since I am not looking at only a long term rental, it could be even a mid term rental. It I could buy a second home use it as an investment property. I could buy a duplex or a triplex or a quadruplex and financing does vary depending upon the type of the property. So that's why it is so important not to just rely on one number from a website, but to actually know, to actually share the detailed scenario and then get the rates. So that information I'm getting from my lender and I'm not just calling up one lender, I'm calling up at least three so that I'm doing my shopping before I decide to go with one. Pooja, one, one follow-up question to that. Like, I, I know a lot of rookies, they get nervous about um, either having their credit run a bunch of times or maybe, you know, um, building a, a bad rapport with the lender because they're always sending them the, these deals. They never actually end up buying. What are your thoughts and or like, how do you navigate that? Like, are they running your credit every single time or, or are they just doing you, giving you like preliminary numbers? Do they know that these are properties you're just looking at or, or are they expecting you to purchase all of these? How do you how do you kind of work that dynamic? Yeah, so so regarding being worried about what the lenders are going to think that, oh, you're just asking them to, you know, give you the rates and just you just keep calling them up and you don't know when you would be able to pull that deal off. It could take three months, four months. I've been calling up my lender for the last seven months. So it, it's it's a long time. But I would say that one should not worry about that. If you have that solid, strong relationship with the lender, if you have worked with them in the past, and even if you have not worked with them in the past, just keep on going. Don't worry about what they're going to think about it. And and if they if they worry too much about it and they are not answering your phone call, guess guess what? There's no dearth of lenders. There's no dearth of good lenders in the world in US. So don't worry about it. Just move on. Move on to the next one. It's their loss, not yours. And then uh, after that, it's uh, as far as the credit check is concerned, no, they don't run my credit check. I, I agree. Yeah, I don't want a hit on my credit every time I'm trying to shop, every time I'm trying to analyze a deal. They don't even run a soft check and it just varies. Let's say if I'm working with the lender who I have already worked with in the past, they would ask me the questions, hey, has anything changed with respect to your situation in terms of the new debt that you have taken in terms of the, your income? They would ask those questions on the basis of the information that they already have about me. They are able to run that scenario for me. So no, the hard credit check is not a mandatory step. A good lender who wants your business, who knows what they're doing, should always be willing to give you that pricing. Pooja, I want to follow up because one of the other things you mentioned that I thought was interesting, and you've kind of led into it a little bit, is that in these, you know, four or five steps that you listed out here that you you focus on the expenses first and you say, hey, I, I, want, I don't want my expenses to exceed X dollars per month. Can you walk me through why why that's one of your first steps? Because I think most people start on the other end where they say, hey, I want my cash flow to be X, but you're looking at it from the opposite side where you're focusing on the expenses first. What do you feel has been the benefit of you kind of flipping it around and, and going at the expenses versus the cash flow? Yeah, so I, I think... Depending upon what your goal is, like our goal from real estate investing is not a passive income. Now, I'm not really looking for cash flow of an X amount of dollars every month. I'm looking to build long-term wealth. I'm looking to build generational wealth. And along the way, of course, I don't want to pay anything out of my own pocket. The reason I start with expenses is also to 
to account for the unforeseen scenarios, to account for the vacancies. Let's say the house is vacant for a month or two months. Let's say the tenant is not able to pay their rent for a month or two months. You have to go through the eviction process. So that monthly outflow will decide whether or not I would be able to pay that mortgage, even if nobody's paying that mortgage for me. So if it is $10,000 a month and I have to pay those $20,000 for two months, that's, that's a lot of money. I don't want to take that risk. <laughs> so I, I, depending upon my own reserves, depending upon my own income, I decide that threshold so that $5,000 is, I'm okay, yeah, so one month I could pay $5,000 if there was a vacancy or somebody didn't pay the rent on time. So that's the reason I start with the expenses because if I, and this is my personal opinion, if I stay focused on generating a cash flow of let's say $500 and I'm buying a property which is like $1.5 million and the monthly cost is like $8,000 and if I have to pay that $8,000 one time, $500, does not make sense. So that's the reason I have this process where I actually look at the expenses first. Before we, so we've gone into your deal analysis, but why did you even start getting interested in this? Can you kind of talk about like how you stay motivated? You're putting in a lot of work, a lot of due diligence into these properties. So maybe touch on your why, what keeps you going, and then maybe even goal setting. Are you setting goals to keep you on track and where do you kind of see yourself going? So my why, so the, the foundation of real estate, it was actually started a long time ago. So I, I grew up in India. So it my my mom was a housewife, homemaker. My father was working, great man, of course. But then he could never become a successful entrepreneur. So we had, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very personal to me. It's very close to my heart. We did have some money problems while I was growing up. So from the young age, I realized the importance of being financially stable. I realized the importance of having a house that you could call home. So there was a situation where we had to move out of our house because, uh, because of some family situation where my father had to sell his share of the property. And at that time, I was still in college. So I think... That's where it was seeded in my mind, like how important it was for me to be financially stable. So at that time, my focus was to earn and to save and to invest. So earn, save, invest. In the beginning, I was focusing on investing in stock market and index funds and mutual funds and fixed income deposits. So that was in the beginning. And then gradually, I realized that if I want to multiply my money, I need to look at diversifying my portfolio. And that's how I started looking into real estate investing. So why I got started was my mindset that I need to be financially stable. Another why I started is that I want to provide the time freedom to my family. And when I say my family, I'm actually talking about my parents who are still living in India. I want to help them out in their retirement. I'm talking about my husband so that he could do whatever he wants to do with his time. If, if he wants to quit his job, maybe he should be able to do that. Another why is to give the time freedom to my kids. I have two boys who are really into playing soccer and all they want to do is be soccer players or soccer ref or soccer coach, not do anything else. So I, I want to provide them that freedom that in future they are able to pursue their passion without having the pressure of being in a race where they have to earn a good college degree or they have to have a nine to five jobs because they need to make the ends meet. 
because they need to pay for their house, which is one of the biggest chunks of your monthly expense. So that that is my why why I started in real estate because uh, I just want to multiply and I want to build generation wealth and I want to have enough income that I can support the family. I can give back to the people. How I stay motivated, it is that why. It is that why. When I imagine that why, that keeps you motivated. It's something like, you know, when people go and buy a lottery ticket, even before you win, you've lived the life in your head. You've lived the life in your head and you're like, man, I'm going to win that lotto and I'm going to be so rich and enjoy my life. So I think I, I imagine that future in my head and that's what keeps me going. And uh, in, in terms of uh, goal setting, I, I just don't know any better. I, I feel like I just want to keep on going. I, I don't have a goal of like, oh, I want 10 doors in 10 years, in 15 years. No, I don't have that goal. I do have a long-term goal in terms of what I want to do. Let's say when I turn 50 years old, I do have those goals. But in terms of a definitive number of properties, I do not have a goal in terms of definitive number of properties, but I have a goal in terms of the monthly income that I want to earn from these rental properties. By the time I'm 50, I want to have $20,000 every month in passive income. I want to be able to buy a small cabin in mountains, live there without any debt. I want my kids to be able to go to college without any student loan. And uh, I want to be able to quit my W2 at that time and work for a nonprofit. So those are my goals, really. And uh, I just keep on going. Yeah, well, Pooja, I mean, what what a phenomenal, uh, motivating reason to to build this real estate business. And it's something that we talk a lot about on the show is that when you think about your why, it has to be something bigger than just dollars and cents. And your why of giving back to your family, of supporting your husband, of supporting your kids, of buying this this cabin in the mountains, like those are things that can really drive someone to stick with it. Because if the goal was just, you know, 20,000 a month in cash flow, that's something that's a little bit harder harder to stick with. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best-selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launch stage to the first order stage to the, did we just sell out the whole store stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling real estate books or retro clothing, Shopify's platform helps you sell everywhere, online or in person. Now, speaking of online, did you know Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better than other leading commerce platforms? And no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business. And that's why we chose Shopify for the bigger pocket bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash bprookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash bprookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash bprookie. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. Now, I, I want to circle back a little bit because you mentioned earlier that um, cash flow right now isn't your biggest motivating factor when you're buying a property. And even that, you might be able or you might be willing to accept a small loss on a property when you first buy it. Um, so I just want to ask, like, how, wh why is that your stance right now? And do you feel that that might make it harder for you to get to that goal of 20K uh, per year in cash flow? First of all, I think I can get 20K per month in cash flow. Yes, easily. I have a, I have a strategy in mind. Um, secondly, the reason I am not too focused on the cash flow right now, I think, um, and it, uh, a very good spot that I'm in is that I still have a W-2 job. So I still have a W-2 job. My husband has a W-2 job. And I personally have no desire to quit my W-2 job. Like, I'm not looking to be able to quit that job. I, I love that job. I, I'm able to contribute. I'm able to... I, I get rewarded. So I work with some great people. So I want to continue working at that job. So that provides me the income that I need. So I am not looking for an alternative source of income, which I could rely on. So that's the reason I'm not too focused on the cash flow right now. And uh, as long as I'm able to stick to my numbers in terms of, let's say, okay, a 5% of the monthly outflow, I account for my income before I come up with that number. So let's say tomorrow I lose my job, uh, hypothetically speaking, I lose my job, then yeah, that 5% will not be 5%, it will be 1%. So it's just like pivoting, depending upon your own situation, it's important. And uh, another reason that the, the cash flow is not important right now to me is because my goal is different. Different people have different goals. Some people have a goal of like actually having a passive income. They want to earn $2,000 a month from passive income. And I, I totally respect that. 
But my goal is to build generational wealth. I am looking to get, for example, by the time I turn 50 years old, if I want $20,000 a month, I most likely would have paid off my mortgage. I would have paid off my mortgage so that rent money that I would receive for those from those properties would just be income. And that's what makes me confident about the fact that, yes, I would be able to have that $20,000 a month in passive income. So for those properties, the condos in India, are those more for appreciation? Just their little cash flow now, but once they're paid off, they're going to kind of contribute to the generational wealth with appreciation? Yes. So, so those properties are already paid off. So when, when we bought them, we paid them off within five years when we bought them. So those properties are there, honestly, for our parents. They're really just there for our parents. If, if they ever want to move there, they can move there. When we get older and we visit India, if we want to move there, we could move there. So to your point, Ashley, yes, that is just for generational wealth. And since they're already paid off, they're, um, they don't have a lot of repairs because they, they were new construction. So I, I did not mention that. They were new construction properties. One of them I bought in 2010. Another one was bought in 2014. Both of them were new construction. So we don't get a lot of repairs requests on that one. So they're just easy to maintain, just being kept there to build generational wealth. Yes. And let's talk about the peace of mind on that too, of having your portfolio and having a couple properties paid off. We hear all the time about like leverage your properties. You're not getting the best return unless you leverage them. Um, You don't keep that much equity in a property. That's a bad investment. What is your thought on having those two properties paid off and not having them leverage to be able to maximize your return on the property. So for example, I just closed on a property I was selling today and it was actually tied in a portfolio loan with another property. And we had the option of, you know, going to the bank and saying, we would like to keep that one property on the loan. So let us know, you know, what the, we we wanted to do 70% of the appraised value when we got the loan for this property we're keeping. We want to keep that loan balance on the property and then we'll just pay off the extra that's due because we're selling this other property and it's not held as collateral anymore. Or we could take the proceeds of the sale, pay off the mortgage and come to the table with another $34,000 to completely pay off both properties. So the one we have to because we're selling. So the other one, we had that option of keeping the debt on it or paying it off. We actually made the decision late last night to completely pay off that property. And it's just that peace of mind thing we wanted as to we've always kept several properties that are paid free and clear. Well, we've sold a couple of them in the past couple of years with the market being so hot. And we kind of looked back and like, wow, we don't have any free and clear properties anymore. Everything has debt on it. So we decided to pay that off. So what was kind of your strategy behind having those properties that are free and clear? Yeah, so it just, I think I touched upon it in the beginning that the first property that we had bought, we had bought it with intent of using it as a primary residence. So that was in 2010. When we moved here, honestly, for five years, we lived here not knowing where we're going to be in next one month. So that's how we lived here for five years. We moved like eight eight times, actual move across states. So it was it was very unpredictable. So that was the reason we had bought that property. And that's the reason it was a new construction. And we intended to pay it off within five years because I was very clear in my mind that we don't want to pay rent. 
We don't want to pay rent and we want to get our foot in the door before it becomes too expensive and we cannot afford it anymore. So those two things were very important to me. Now, in terms of leveraging the properties to buy other investments, I, I do do that. It's just that those two properties in India, I don't do it with them because number one, I don't want to sell them. So the only way I would be able to leverage those properties if I sell them. Getting a HELOC on those properties in India, just don't even think about it. Like it's going, it's going to be a nightmare. That's interesting to know. And that's not really something I would think about is that being in a different country, it's not as easy to just go and refinance or to get other kind of yeah on the property. So yeah, so getting a con- like getting a HELOC on those properties, that concept does not even exist there like officially through the banks. Of course, you could go to a private lender, you could keep your property as a collateral and then borrow money against it. But it's it's not it's not a very ideal process that you want to go through. Just 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 the way systems are set up over there. So that's why I can't leverage a HELOC. The only way I can leverage the equity in those properties if I sell those properties. Now, the properties that we have here, we have leveraged the equity buildup in those properties. And that's how, like in US, in total, we've had, at one point, we owned six properties. We sold two of them. But then at one point, we owned six properties in US. And the only way I was able to do that is through leveraging the equity in those properties. Just one, one follow up from you, right? Cause like I've, I've always almost been on the other side, Ashley, where, where it's like, I love the idea of leverage and kind of scaling faster and, and using your, your debt to, you know, get the next property. But I've had two friends of mine, both successful entrepreneurs who paid off their primary residences. And they just talked about like the peace of mind. And I know you've talked a lot about, you know, you paying off a lot of your personal debt and the peace of mind that comes with that. And I, I think there is something to consider around, um, you know, this aggressive scale and the use of debt versus really being able to sleep at night to know, even if, you know, everything hits the fan, your home where you live is paid for it and you don't have to worry about that. So, you know, I feel like I am kind of going through the shift where it almost might make sense for me to start focusing on on that as well. So you're, you're, you're rubbing off on me a little bit, Ash, for sure. Well, Pooja, do you want to go through one of your uh, deals for us and kind of explain the whole process? We'll throw some rapid fire questions at you first. Yeah, I do. But I wanted to address that, like the, the peace of mind aspect of it, because you asked about it and I didn't quite touch upon it. So the the way I define peace of mind for me is uh, having long term rentals. Like I'm not doing short term rentals. I'm not doing midterm rentals. And the reason I'm trying to stay focused in certain areas in Southern California is so that there is, I have, uh, I have almost like certainty that those houses will be rented within two weeks. Depending upon the location, our, our tenant screening criteria is so solid that there are very less chances of us running into a situation where uh, a tenant is not able to pay their rent. So that peace of mind for me is to receive that rent check every month having that, excuse me, having that stability and then being able to pay off that mortgage. Now, the reason I have not thought about paying off our primary residence is uh, we got it at like 2.625% interest rate. So I don't know if it if it makes sense financially for us to pay off that debt. If I want to pay off that debt, let's say it's like $500,000, I could invest those $500,000. Even if I invested in a boring certificate of deposit, I would still earn more than 2.625%. 
So I, I do get that, especially from being from an Asian country, you know, it, it isn't, it is very much in our culture, like, oh, don't have debt, own your property, all free and clear, don't have debt. Home is supposed to be a place which you own all 100%. But then the practical side of me kicks in and says, like, come on, this does not make sense. You want to pay off a debt that you borrowed at 2.6 to 5% when you could use that money and easily earn like 7 to 8% interest. So that that opportunity cost of the money is what helps me from making that decision. So so that's that's where the peace of mind gets taken care of. And that was always my thought too, right? It's like you could take that cash and get a better return. But I think I'm starting to shift my mindset a little bit where maybe there are certain aspects of my life where I'll take that opportunity cost of not getting a better return elsewhere for the peace of mind that comes along with, you know, having to pay it off. And I haven't done this yet. Like we still have debt in our primary residence too. But as I think about our, our future decisions, that is something that I'm, I'm starting to consider. So and, and tomorrow, I think that if I lose my job, honestly, like there's so many ways for our <laughs> income. It's like I could deliver Amazon packages. I could be a babysitter. I could be a housekeeper. Like I could do have more time to buy properties. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's like that that fear is something that yeah that does does not stay with me that I won't have a source of income okay well do you want to lead us through uh one of your deals that you're done uh, that you've done I'll uh just give you some questions and then you can give short responses to that and then we'll kind of go through the story of it yeah sure let's do it what is the property that you purchased single family multifamily single family distance okay and what market is it in southern California okay and how much did you purchase it for uh purchase price was 1.4 and how did you find the deal? Off market. And it's a long-term rental? It was a primary residence. Oh, okay. I want to touch upon the creative financing aspect of it. Okay, cool. Yeah, why don't you go into that then? Okay, so yeah, so it was, we already were living in our primary residence and I had uh, like not not really solid plans of moving, but it was still in the back of my mind. I I never want to say no to a good deal. So that's that's just my strategy. I never want to say no to an opportunity. So, so there was, uh, I was subconsciously looking for other primary residents. I found out about an off-market house that some owners were trying to sell last year in December. So that was still the peak of the market. So getting an off-market deal at that time, that was golden. And the purchase price was golden too. The house is definitely worth more than that. What would you say the house is worth when you purchased it at 1.4? What did you think it was worth at that time? 1.55. Yeah. And and it was it was a peculiar situation for the sellers that they were just uh, they were moving from one state to another and they didn't want to go through the process of uh, actually getting the house ready, getting people, looking at offers. So it they wanted to do an off market deal. So that kind of was a win win situation for the sellers as well as for us. Let me ask you this real quick before you go on. How did you find that information out? Because that can like make or break a deal is finding out the motivation of why a seller is selling the property. It was uh, directly from the sellers, actually. So there was a realtor involved. So I'm, I'm a real estate agent and I ran into another real estate agent at an open house. And uh, it was, uh, there was, it was not a secret. Like they, they were, they were very comfortable with sharing that, that yes, we are looking for an off-market sale as long as the price is right. Okay, cool. And then you want to continue on with the rest of the deal? So how did you finance it? Yes, yeah, so it was uh, 1.4. The down payment was 20%. And uh, at that time, I 
we did not have funds to make that 20% down payment. So as far as the creative financing is concerned, so there were a few options that we had on the table. One, what we could do is uh, we could sell our, you know, the funds that we had in the brokerage accounts, or we could sell some of the stocks that we had in our ESOPs accounts. Or what we decided to do is that utilize the money from the HELOC on our primary residence. So the primary residence that we had bought in 2017, we had a home equity line of credit on that property. That was for $150,000. We utilize all of that $150,000 on that line of credit. The interest rate on that line of credit was about 3.95%. The interest rates were still low. So from a point of view of how much you're borrowing, the interest rate was still within our budget. We also used a liquidity access line. So the liquidity access line is kind of similar to a home equity line of credit. In a home equity line of credit, essentially you're using the equity that you have built in a house as a collateral to borrow money against it. In liquidity access line, you're actually using the money that you have in terms of the stocks, the securities to borrow against it. So instead of selling our stocks, we drew a liquidity access line on it and utilized $80,000 from there. So that was $230,000 that uh, we technically borrowed, utilizing the lines of credits. And then after that, uh, we borrowed $60,000 from a private money lender. So with those two lines of credit, I think first it's important to mention that the liquidity access line of credit can all, can't be a retirement account, correct? It has to be non-retirement account to um, pull or to get a line of credit on. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes, that is absolutely correct. So with these two lines of credit, were they both interest-only payments? And how did that affect your debt-to-income? So now you're going to the bank to get the mortgage on this new property. Did they look at those payments to the line of credit and include that into your debt-to-income? They did not look at that payment. So even at that time when I was trying to draw money from the line of credits and I'm getting a pre-approval, we owned three other rentals at that time. So the debt to income ratio can get affected by that. So all those three rental properties were rented. So the payment for those two lines of credits were not accounted in the pre-approval for the mortgage. And then as far as the payment is concerned, for a fixed number of years, and it can really vary from bank to bank. That's why I don't want to say it is five years or 10 years. It can vary from bank to bank, from product to product. But you would, you can pay only the interest for like 10 years, the HELOC that we had, we could, we were okay. We were allowed to pay interest only for 10 years. But of course, at some point you have to pay the principal as well. So it's not that you can just pay interest. And then if you just want to pay interest, then you will just keep paying interest. And on, it's very important to know that the interest on a HELOC, it's variable. It's not fixed. So it was 3.95% at that time. But today, if I was paying interest on that HELOC, it would have been much more. So that's something very important to account for in your calculations when you're taking the lines of credits. So with that property, you moved into it. And did you end up refinancing out of it? Did you update it all or do anything to it to pay off those lines of credit in the original loan? Or what? what's happened with the property today? So um, we're living in the property. So I my strat I had a strategy in mind. So we owned three rentals at that time. So one of the rentals that we have is in Southern California. The two other rentals were in Austin. So we had bought two properties in Austin, two single family residences. So when we started looking at this primary residence, the 
inflation was already increasing at that time. From October to November to December, it was increasing by at least 0.2% every month. So I decided to sell the Austin properties. So my strategy was that, okay, we will draw money from the HELOC, we'll draw money from the liquidity access line, we'll borrow money from a private lender, and we will sell both our properties in Austin. And the money, that the funds that we will get from the Austin properties, we would be able to pay off the HELOC as well as a liquidity access line, as well as a private money lender. And we were able to. So we sold both the Austin properties. One was sold in January 2022. Another one was sold in April 2022. And those funds were used to pay off the lines of credit. I think what was really interesting and what I think is so important that not a lot of people realize is that... Uh, Let's say I want to buy a house. It could be a primary residence or a second home or investment property. Sometimes when we don't have the money available readily, that can be a blocker. And people just you know get demotivated by that and they don't take a step forward. But if one is creative with their financing, they could make the situation work. It is, it is very important to know the, what, what access you have to your financial accounts and how you can utilize it. Like at some, at one point, I almost sold those stocks. Now I wish I had because the stock price was really high. <laughs> but at one point, at one point, I thought, oh yeah, let's just sell these stocks and use this money. But at the same time, there was if I could draw money from it using a liquidity access line, then that was a better decision because then you're holding your stocks for a longer period of time if that is your strategy. And with us. All investments that we are doing is long-term buy and hold, long-term buy and hold. So we never want to sell anything. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting and I think important takeaway, Pooja, for all of our listeners is that, you know, you had this amazing opportunity and you could have just kind of thrown your hands up in the air and say, well, we don't have the cash, but you got creative. You took a calculated risk and kind of pulling debt from, you know, the HELOC, the access line, the private money lender, but you knew that you had a way to... Uh, in a short period of time, pay that debt off. So um, obviously not everyone's going to be in the same situation, but I think the lesson for our rookie listeners to take away is if you find a great deal, focus on getting creative um, to to make that deal come together instead of just kind of throwing your hands up and saying, oh man, this isn't going to work. So we, we, I definitely do appreciate you sharing that, Pooja. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to inspire some folks to to go out there and make some deals happen. Yeah. And, and it's important to like take a calculated risk. Honestly, if I didn't have... Uh... If I didn't have a plan of selling those two properties, I didn't know if I want to borrow 80% of that 1.4 and on top of it, borrow another $230,000. Right. But you, it was a calculated risk, which I think is something you, you seem to be really, really good at, which is awesome. Uh, all right. So I want to I want to take us into our rookie exam, Pooja. These are the three most important questions you will ever be asked in your life. Uh, so are you ready for the exam? Bond ready. <laughs> all right. There you, that's, I love that. That might be the best response you've gotten to me asking that question. Um, question number one, what's one actionable thing Ricky should do after listening to your episode? Well, after listening to the episode, I would say that um, build a community. I think it's so important to have the like-minded community because it provides you access to the education. It provides you access to the resources that you would need in your real estate journey. Like for me, that was the key. All that I have learned about creative financing, liquidity access line, HELOC, everything came from just talking to the like-minded people, reading the articles written by like-minded people, listening to the conversations, listening to the podcast, involving the like-minded people. So I think it is very important to join a like-minded community 
to stay focused on your real estate journey. Yes. What is one tool, software, app, or system in your business that you use? I use Avail a lot. So I use Avail for all our tenant screenings and to receive the rental applications. It's a property management software, right? It's a, it's a property management software, but uh, it's mainly the main use for me is to run the rental applications, to run the background check, to run the credit check and to economy screen the tenants. And another one that I use is AirDNA. Anytime I'm looking at analyzing a property, I want to look at the different strategies, like, okay, could it work as a long-term rental? Could it work as a mid-term rental? Could it work as a short-term rental? And to do the analysis for the short-term rentals, AirDNA really comes in handy. All right, last question for you, Pujo. Where do you plan on being in five years? So in five years, I still want to continue working in my W2 job and uh, I want to add two more properties to our rental portfolio. So two more properties to our rental portfolio, both of them, two of them together giving me $1,000 a month positive cash flow. And another goal that I have is um, I've set up a new company, a house and boat company for transitional youth. So it is to provide provide housing to the youth who's in foster care or who have exited foster care. And my goal is to provide housing to 100 kids in five years. Pooja, thank you so much for joining us. Can you let everyone know where they can reach out to you and find out some more information about you? Yeah, of course. The best place to find me is on Instagram. My Insta handle is my first name dot last name with an extra L with an extra love. So Pooja dot Jindal, J-I-N-D-A-L-L. So that's the best place to find me. I regularly post videos on you know, what I'm doing and a lot of educational stuff just to give back to people. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated having you on the show and giving us tons of advice and sharing your story with us. Thank you. I'm Ashley at Wealthform Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. And we'll be back on Saturday with a rookie reply. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own.
Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.